Institute at Friends University. Uh, we are in this town called Sierra Madre. It's just north of Los Angeles. It's nestled in the Sierra Madre Mountains. And um, we're at this uh, retreat center called uh, Mater de la Rosa Passionist Retreat Center. Uh, Mater de la Rosa is uh, Latin for the sad mother. And the Passionists are an order of the Catholic Church that focus on the, the passion of Jesus. And, uh, and so I think that's why they're sad is because it's kind of a sad thing. You think about the suffering and the death of Christ, but they also focus on the resurrection of Christ, which is a good thing. And this property is gorgeous. I mean, at some point, I wish you all could experience it. It's truly amazing. Um, it's, it's this giant piece of property and... Um, we would go out in the morning uh, to do our morning prayer in this little amphitheater. And so we're outside and we're doing some liturgy and we're singing. And in the field right next to us in this property, there's like seven deer that are just walking around on the property. And then uh, there are these um, green parrots that were flying overhead and they were squawking and singing and everything. And they were singing with us as we're singing. It was just really gorgeous. And, and I think that's what um, the apostle Paul had in mind when he said, you know, co-suffering with Christ. We had to just suffer in that beautiful atmosphere. It was just so hard to come back to cold Kansas. And so, um, no, uh, it, it was a really good time. And you all didn't think that was funny. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, but it, it was a good time, but I'm glad to be back. And I wanted to start uh, this morning, I wanted to start the message by saying that coming home is awesome. Uh, I went to a college in Orlando, Florida. Uh, it was three hours from my hometown of West Palm Beach. And the good thing about this arrangement is that it's far enough away that my mom and dad just couldn't pop in on you, you know, couldn't pop in on me. But it's close enough for if, if I needed to get home, I could pretty quickly. Well, when I came home from college, whether that was for a long weekend or over the summer, it was really great. I discovered a lot can change in five years. And during the high school days, my parents would say, clean your room, fix your lunch, do your laundry. Who do you think I am, your butler? But when I went away for a year or two, their tune totally changed. Hey, Johnny, make sure you bring your dirty clothes home with you so I can wash them. And my mom would treat me so well. She'd do a few loads of laundry. She would even make her famous meatloaf. Like I said, coming home is awesome. After I graduated from college, I'd go back every year for this thing called homecoming. And this was awesome, too. I'd seen people that I was close with in college but hadn't seen in a while. And we'd catch up on our careers, and we'd talk about our wives, and we'd laugh about old times. Well, today, I come home from work uh, every day, and everyone's totally pumped to see me. Amber gives me a kiss, the kids run in, and they hug me, and even the dog is jumping at my feet. And uh, I feel like a, I'm a hero coming home from the war, but there's no like, ticker tape parade, but it's still awesome to come home. And as you may have guessed, I've thought a lot about coming home um, recently and about homecomings. Well, there was one homecoming that wasn't awesome. I was in seventh grade at Gulfview Junior High, and I thought about showing a picture of me from that year, but y'all would never let me in, uh, hear the end of it, especially you, Brian McLaren. <laughs> Jokesta. So I decided to spare myself the teasing. I know. So I'm in seventh grade. I'm at the peak of my adolescent awkwardness. And I'm at the homecoming dance. And I didn't have a date, so I was hanging around with all my buddies. 
Now, I could have danced with plenty of girls that night, rest assured. But there was only one that I really wanted to dance with, Kathleen McNeil. Oh, Kathleen was so cute with her teased bangs and her little mint green dress with the little poofy ruffled sleeves. Everybody from the 80s knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Kathleen was also an eighth grader. She was an older girl. Hey, if you're not setting your goals high, <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I waited almost the entire night to ask Kathleen to dance with me. And I finally mustered up the nerve to do it. So I walked up to her and I said, hey, Kathleen, would you dance with me? You know what she said? No. She said, no, can you believe that? I felt my face get flush. I walked away. I thought I was going to vomit. It was so embarrassing. It totally crushed me. In fact, Kathleen, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm still a little bitter about that night. You want to know why? Because rejection stinks. It's not fun to be rejected. And there's research to back this up. We experience rejection in several ways. In fact, rejection is the most common emotional wound we sustain in daily life. Our risk of rejection used to be limited by the size of our immediate social circle or our dating pools. But today, thanks to email and texting and social media and dating apps, each of us is connected to thousands of people any of whom might ignore our posts or our chats or our texts or our dating profiles and leave us feeling rejected as a result. In addition to these kinds of minor rejections, we're also vulnerable to serious and more devastating rejections. When our spouse leaves us, when we get fired from our jobs, snubbed by our friends, or ostracized by our families and communities for our lifestyle choices, the pain that we feel can be absolutely paralyzing. Whether the rejection we experience is large or small, one thing remains constant. It always hurts. And it usually hurts more than we expect it to. The question is why? Why are we so bothered by a good friend failing to like our family picture that we post on Facebook? Why does it ruin our mood? Why would something so seemingly insignificant make us feel angry at our friend and moody and bad about ourselves? The answer is this. Our brains are wired to respond that way. When scientists place people in a functional MRI machine and ask them to recall a recent rejection, they discovered something amazing. The same areas of our brain become activated when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain. That's why even small rejections hurt more than we think they should, because they elicit literal, albeit emotional, pain. In fact, our brains respond so similar to, similar to rejection and physical pain that Tylenol actually reduces the emotional pain caused by rejection. Researchers conducted a study to test this theory. They gave participants in the study Tylenol before asking them to recall a painful emotional experience. The people who received Tylenol reported significantly less emotional pain than subjects who took a placebo. The bottom line is this. As far as your brain is concerned, a broken heart 
is no different than a broken arm. But why is our brain wired this way? Psychologists believe it all started when we were hunter-gatherers who lived in tribes. Since we couldn't survive alone, being ostracized from our tribe was basically a death sentence. As a result, we developed an early warning mechanism to alert us when we were at danger of being kicked off the islands by our tribesmates, and that was rejection. People who experienced rejection as more painful were more likely to change their behavior, remain in the tribe, and pass along their genes. Dr. Nathan DeWall, a psychologist at the University of Kentucky, says, humans have a fundamental need to belong, which is something we know to be true at Hope Covenant. Just as we have needs for food and water, we also have needs for positive and lasting relationships. This need is deeply rooted and has all sorts of consequences for modern psychological processes. We're on a journey, traveling the way of Jesus through the book of Mark. And in the coming weeks, we will journey to the cross of Good Friday and the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. And today we're going to take a look at a powerful story about Jesus in his hometown. But first, it'll be helpful for, for us to just take a quick look back for just a second. A few, few weeks ago, uh, I talked about Jesus using his God-given authority to calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee. If you've been reading along in, in the reading plan and joining us on Sundays, you know that Jesus was really busy after that. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus drives out the demons from the possessed man in the cave. And the pigs go running into the lake. Remember that? Jesus then heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Finally, he raised a dead girl to life. Now you would think that calming a storm, restoring a possessed man, healing a hemorrhaging woman, and raising a dead girl to life would earn Jesus a little bit of street cred in his hometown. But you'd be wrong. If you brought your Bibles, uh, we are in Mark chapter 6, and today we're going to be looking at the first six verses. Mark starts the passage by saying, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Here's what we know at this point. Jesus leaves the town of Capernaum, and he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, where he spent early years growing up. Rabbis always rolled with a posse, this would be a group of apprentices or understudies. In this story, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And then in verse 2, it says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? On the Sabbath day, Jesus was given a chance to read from the Torah and began teaching the congregation that was there. Now for us, it would be like Jesus walking into Hope Covenant on a Sunday morning. Pretty big deal, right? And he would be standing right here in teaching. The text says the people were amazed at what he taught. Some translations say the people were astonished. Notice how things change for the people, though. After being blown away by Jesus' teaching, they begin to wonder. Hey, wait a second. This guy's been dropping pearls of wisdom, but he wasn't trained like the other rabbis. 
He's also working miracles with his own hands. Where did he get this power and authority? In that day, there were only two possibilities. The source was either from God or it was demonic. Then the people took Jesus' prior vocation and his standing in the community into consideration. That's when things got ugly. The story continues. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The crowds asked, isn't this the carpenter? Since this was Jesus' hometown, the community was well aware of the type of training received from his dad. They probably saw Jesus as nothing more than a common laborer working in the hot sun day after day with Joseph, using his hands to build things. Despite what they heard from others and witnessed with their own eyes, the crowd failed to see beyond the ordinariness of this hometown laborer. Maybe it was because Nazareth wasn't considered a very special or exotic town. In the first chapter of John, Jesus calls Philip to be one of his disciples. Philip is pumped, so he runs and tells his friend Nathaniel. And and he tells him, what just happened? Jesus just called me. And so let's take a look at this. In verse 45, it starts, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael asked, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? You see, there was a narrative about Nazareth. Perhaps it was a false narrative. Maybe because others thought there wasn't anything special about Nazareth. And the people who lived there didn't think of themselves as special either. And they projected their insecurities on the Messiah. If I'm no good, then neither is he. That's their narrative. And what we're about to see is that those, what those people believed about themselves prevented them from believing in Jesus. Here's another point to consider. The Pharisees always expected, even demanded, marvelous signs and exotic wonders to characterize the works of God. So it was inconceivable to the people of Nazareth that God could be at work in the commonplace. Yet, isn't it in the common, in the familiar, in the ordinary patterns of our daily lives that we encounter the God who knows us and loves us? Now, back to the story. They called Jesus a common carpenter. Then the gloves come off. And they ask, isn't this Mary's son? In the ancient world, sons were always referenced by their father. It was contrary to Jewish custom to describe a man as the son of his mother, even when she was a widow. The traditional way would be, isn't this Joseph's son? But they say Mary's son. Why? They're insulting him. Now, Evan, all right, it would be the highest honor to be called Allison's son, right? Yes, not yes. Okay. In Trip, it would be the highest honor to be considered Jessica's son, right? Yes. Aiden, it would be the highest honor to be considered Amber's son, right? 
He's, he, he means it. I know he does. But back then, it was a derogatory, a disparaging comment. They find no reason to believe that Jesus possesses the anointment of God. And the story continues. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Several times in Jewish and Greek literature, prophets were welcomed in towns and cities all over. However, in the prophet's hometown, well, that's another story. Ironically, they were dishonored. The crowd's unbelief in Jesus' authority limited his activity to the healing of a few sick people. Now, I want to be very clear here. Mark isn't saying that Jesus couldn't perform any miracles in Nazareth. The reason he includes this is to indicate that Jesus wasn't free to exercise his power in these circumstances. Jesus knew the performance of miracles with the absence of faith would have only resulted in the aggravation of human guilt and the hardening of men's hearts towards God. Mark is drawing our attention not to the limits of Jesus' power, but rather to the adversity and the misery of people's unbelief. If they had believed in Jesus, he could have done so much more. For the earliest readers of Mark's gospel, it was shocking that Jesus' own people would reject his teachings and works. And today, in our own context, Shouldn't it be just as shocking for people who claim to be a part of the family, brothers and sisters of Christ, to reject the teachings and works of Jesus by our own unbelief? Mark concludes this passage by noting that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Notice how the story begins with the people astonished and amazed at Jesus' words and works and how it ends with Jesus being astonished and amazed at their unbelief. In the story, Jesus should have been a hometown hero. But instead, he was a hometown zero. He was rejected by his own people. And we know how much rejection hurts. But here's the important part. God came to be with us through Jesus. And I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son. Generous inside and out, true from start to finish. In coming to earth as an infant, and in working with his hands as a young boy, and being in community with his friends, as well as being rejected and denied by those that are closest to him, Jesus experienced the full range of humanity. Jesus knows what it's like to love, and hurt, and laugh, and grieve. And he identified with us so that we could identify with him. As most of you know, we're observing Lent, 
This is the 40-day period that takes us all the way up to Easter. This is the time when the church worldwide participates in practices that are meant to prepare us for a fuller realization of the work of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Oftentimes, we give something up for Lent. For you, that could be sweets, maybe it's soda, maybe it's coffee, maybe it's video games. And that experience can be painful, maybe downright miserable. This practice of abstinence is not a twisted form of punishment or some legalistic way to earn God's love. The practice of abstinence during Lent gives us a unique opportunity to identify with Jesus in his suffering, in his rejection, and draw closer to God for strength and endurance. As we study the way of Jesus, we see that despite his suffering and death on the cross, Jesus expresses the deepest form of love. He says, Father, forgive them. How can we identify with Jesus today? Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe your heart is broken and it feels like your arm instead. Maybe you've been rejected and someone needs your forgiveness. Who's the Kathleen McNeil in your life? Jesus can help you with that. And you can do that today by saying, Lord Jesus, I've been hurt and rejected and my body is aching. Would you help me experience your love? Would you help me experience your grace? I want to draw closer to you. Help me to show others the kind of forgiveness that you show me. And look to you to turn my rejection story into a resurrection story. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, as we draw closer to the cross and the rejection you faced, we find our stories in your story. You know what it is to hurt, and you are there to comfort us. Thank you for your kindness and mercy. Jesus, you are our hometown hero. And I pray that we continue to grow as a church of great faith and great expectations. We don't want to be a group of unbelievers. So today we submit ourselves to your teachings and your wonderful works. Help us to experience the fullness of a resurrected life. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.